0: I think in the Anglo-Saxon world, we've been taught that happiness comes with wealth and with consumption. From a sustainability perspective, that's not going to work much longer. And if we're going to deal with consumption, we have to deal with aspiration, desire, and happiness. And we've got to break that circle that you must want things and you must become happy
1: by wanting and, and confusing need with want. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. My guest today is an architect's architect. To me, he's the textbook definition of substance over style. That's not to say his works aren't alluring, quite the opposite. They have that special quality in design, where upon looking at any completed project of his, you can't imagine it being any different or any better. Sir David Chipperfield. First, the basics for those of you who don't know him. He was born in England and raised in a farm in Devon, and later studied at London's Architectural Association in the 1970s. He then cut his teeth working for other greats like Norman Foster and Richard Rogers, and started his own firm in the 1980s. While he's renowned for his museums and other grand and important works, he got his big break in retail and stretched his legs in the most unlikely place, Japan. A shop for Issey Miyake in London led to commissions in Tokyo and Kyoto, and his career grew from there. The most pivotal page in his portfolio, however, is probably the reconstruction of the Neues Museum in Berlin. The stunning project blended old and new, and inspired a generation of architects to think about modernity in a whole new way. More on that later. Today, he has offices all over the world, and his reputation seems to be, when you have something important and monumental that needs to be done right, you call David Shipperfield. His latest masterwork is, forgive my Italian, the Procuratie Vecchia on Venice's Piazza San Marco, originally built in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. The historic structure sits along the entire north side of the public square, and his interiors deftly weave old and new together in the most sensitive and responsible ways. I caught up with David from his home in London to talk about his first residential project he did for photographer Nick Knight, the legacy of his museum in Berlin, his goals for being named Design Advocate for London, And his family's second life of sorts in Galicia, where he has a home, restaurant and nonprofit looking to bring good design to a neglected corner of Spain. So I kind of I read something about your early life that you worked um, on your father's farm in Devon as a as a young man before going to boarding school. And I'm wondering if you could share a couple of your memories of that time. What was the farm like?
0: It was quite small. It was uh, I, my father was uh, an evacuee during the war. I mean, he was you know he grew up in London, and they took all the kids out of London for a few years, and he spent time in the countryside. And I think that sort of impressed him, and it, he carried that image with him for a long time and then you know he he was an upholsterer he was quite a success where he ran his little com- company and did quite well and then when he was in his late 20s he decided he wanted to be a farmer so we moved lock stock and barrel to, to devon and he bought a, a fairly hopeless farm rather prettily located and uh we had a bit of a noah's ark we had two of everything nearly and and um he learned how to be a farmer, uh, you know, it was a sort of school of hard knocks and um, uh, gradually specialized in pigs and different crops. And and,
1: and, and how did you, uh, you know, as a young man, like what what about architecture appealed to you? I was very fortunate. In a, a boarding school is like a sort of mini
0: society, you know, you have to, well, it's weird, but it's a mini society without women, which was, or girls, you know, which is slightly kinky. I mean, it's not... And uh, not to be recognized. I think now they're much more modern. I think they're mixed schools. But in those days, it was a, a you know a bit of a sort of monastery. But you had to be good at something. And I wasn't academically very good, but I was I was good at sports and, and athletics, and I was good in art. And and I had I had the fortune to have a really great art teacher who who uh, took me under his wing and encouraged me and pushed me and gave me confidence, um, which I didn't have in my other subjects. And he really got me excited about being an architect and encouraged me that way.
1: And so after graduating, I think you, you worked for Norman Foster for a few years. Is that true? And like, what was that? experience like how did you get the job um i worked for richard rogers
0: first and i got that job because i happened to know richard and uh, my first commission for him was to find a studio for him because they had to move offices and i did a lot of i worked on a lot of competitions i worked on lloyd's competition uh then i worked for norman foster on a part-time basis and i worked on the bbc competition which we won and i because i was part of you know i was leading the competition team in fact at that point i, I the norman kept me on to work for a few years on that project and as soon as that project looked like it wasn't going to happen uh, i decided to leave but it was it was um, they were good years to to learn about professionalism i mean they were both both offices of very high professional performance and sort of unusual in england in a way which was much more you know, the architectural profession was much more shambolic and and typically a sort of gent, you know, sort of historically a sort of gentleman's profession and a bit old fashioned. And so the Foster and Rogers offices were felt very exciting.
1: And that was uh, what What year was that? It was like early 80s. Yes, exactly that. Yeah. And I, I mean, that brings me to my next question is, you know, that time in London was so tumultuous as when we think about London at the time. and You know, you mentioned that architecture had that kind of, as you say, shambolic kind of gentlemanly thing. Uh, What was on your mind when you were in those offices um, and and working for people like Norman Foster and, and so on? Like, what were you what were you trying to do with architecture in the world that I think that you think at the time was sort of, you know, that you were radical or you were trying to put out into the world? I'm not sure you know. You know, I mean, I think the generation
0: before us came out into a slightly different notion of profession and probably a society where the profession where the profession was probably held in slightly higher regard. Uh, the post-war period in Britain, I think, there was a you know architects were valuable, they were useful, and there was a there was a great enthusiasm and optimism about planning a a new state after the war. And the, and obviously, with with strong welfare uh, tendencies in terms of building new schools, building new universities, building new housing, um, so there was a sort of uh, in a in a way a sort of coincidence of uh, international uh, modern movement uh, ideology and social predicament of building a new society. By the time I came out of architecture school, that. That vision and that dream and that optimism had slightly um, tanked, uh, and uh, the general attitude amongst um, society was not not only was was the state in a mess. Certainly in, in the UK, I mean we were uh, we had deep recession. Margaret Thatcher was was reinventing society or stripping uh, society back. Uh, questioning uh, sort of conventional uh, structures public structures um, trying to free the free market trying to trying to make us let's be clear more American in that sense at the same time popular opinion was had turned against planners and architects because evidence that they had left on the ground wasn't giving them the sense that we were building better you know we emerged from college in a in a commercially uh, bad period, and I would say, you know, from a professional point of view, a sort of spiritually bad period, and, and one where the profession itself was sort of intellectually trying to rethink its position, both in terms of, uh, yeah, intellectual direction and also um, social social position.
1: Before we return to David Chipperfield, a word from our sponsor, Ann Sachs. In the world of inspired interiors, there are a few brands that have become synonymous with timeless American style. As an interiors editor for nearly 20 years, one name comes up again and again. Anne Sachs. The brand opened its Portland, Oregon factory 30 years ago, realizing a vision to produce the finest handcrafted tile showcasing modern, timeless design. Anne Sachs' latest achievement is the introduction of stone slabs, a key element to the design of any kitchen, bathroom counter, shower surround, or if you're lucky, home bar. With the company's incredible experience as a foundation, Ansax is offering a curated selection of more than 60 varieties of marble, quartz, porcelain, and granite. And this summer, the company will open its third slab gallery in New York's Long Island City, after its first two in Dallas and Nashville. At these incredible one-stop destinations, you'll be able to work hand-in-hand with their design associates on everything surface-related. For more information about any Ansax tile or stone, or to find a showroom near you, visit www. And And some of your earlier work was in retail, and I'm sort of curious um, about, you know, if you think that that foundation kind of made you a better architect today, or perhaps like helped you on that kind of trajectory. And what do you think about when you think about those early retail uh, uh, projects?
0: It was survival. I mean, it was it was a way of being independent. And, um, you know, I left Norman Foster's office and did a shop, which was in one sense a sort of peculiar thing to do because I had the opportunity to work on, uh, to be part of a bigger team on bigger projects. Um, and I think it's, it's a, a question that faces all young, uh, arrogant architects, uh, uh, you know, should... Should I work for somebody else? Should I try to work for myself? and you know you know there's no real there's no real script to follow about being an actor. It's not easy to know. And I, I suppose I just took a gamble and thinking that that's what I wanted to do. I was never really, I mean, I admired and I enjoyed working in those offices, but I didn't ever feel it was where I wanted to be. But uh, whereas uh, previous generation may have aspired to doing, you know, a university uh, building, we were happy to get a s- small shop or a bathroom extension for for someone so it was the way of of striking out i guess but the difficulty was then you know how to proceed from there michael graves famously said i did a someone's kitchen extension because i thought it would lead to doing a house and i thought the house would lead to doing a museum but actually it just led to more kitchen extensions that was a little bit of a problem but certainly um the shop i did the first shop was for isemiaki and then is a me to japan so it gave me uh i i kept I was going once a month for five years nearly to Japan, and it was during the bubble period. And although the work for Ise was of limited architectural uh, scope, uh, culturally it was a great experience. And through Ise, I met a lot of people. And then I, in fact, the first three buildings I did were in Japan. So, that strangely, that one shop led me to do the type of projects which I'd never have managed to have got here.
1: And what was, uh, yeah, I mean, that bubble period in Japan, uh, you know, now is almost like the stuff of legends. And I'm curious, what was it like when you would go to visit Japan for work? I mean, I'm, had you visited previously in a, you know, as just as a tourist or was your first time there kind of working there?
0: No, my first time with that was, was, was working there on, on a two-day notice. I got a call from Izzy saying, could I be there before Christmas? Because um, uh, uh, Japan, they always, um, they don't, well, certainly in those days they they didn't celebrate christmas they do a bit now from a commercial point of view but um business, they celebrate the end of the year and uh, the beginning of a new year and business has to be finished so invariably there's a lot of deadlines and things have to be done before so i was i always found myself there at the end of the year to finishing anyway the first time i went was was on short notice to go there and it was it was a total shock and but
1: a wonderful shock and uh, uh, yeah it was a great experience and uh i'm I'm also curious about uh another uh, sort of a slightly earlier project, which was uh the home for photographer Nick Knight, which you kind of expanded on later on and it was you know an incredible house in a very suburban neighborhood from what I can tell. What was that like in that brief and and uh how many homes had you done up until that point i'm I'm just curious where that falls in your sort of timeline
0: no, that was the first the first um, house, I, I think it was the first freestanding. Well, it wasn't really a freestanding building. It was we were converting the house that Nick's father had built uh, and extending it uh, into uh, into a new house. Um, and yes, I think that was the first piece of architecture. And of course, working with Nick was wonderful. It was a great,
1: um, great. Uh, great fun Um, and what was what was uh, a photographer like that as a client i would assume that you know i think when you people think about fashion photographers and people like that that they have like uh you know really expressive views and uh, i don't know but the phone the home itself is of course looks uh very serene and peaceful and i'm kind of curious what that conversation with him was like like what did he ask for for a home from you especially if it was your first ever um no
0: nick was the easiest person to work with i mean he's totally respectful he's a he's a professional he has utmost respect i mean maybe too much respect for other professionals um so there was no issue about that whatsoever I and mean, we have very similar tastes and he was similarly um enamored of things japanese at the time i think we all were at that time it was a very you know, there's a lot of influence. He was he was doing all the work for Yoji Yamamoto at the time with Peter Saville. Um, so, you know, there was a yeah, there was a sense of uh, commonality in terms of you know a belief in sort of modern things, a belief in Japan, you know, well, a sort of excitement about what was happening in Japan. Um, yeah, so that was it was a it was a great modest uh, sized project retrospectively but of course at the time it was a it was a great opportunity for a young architect to, to start starting
1: off is there anything in that project that you think is unmistakably yours in a sense that if someone were put this in a, a monograph of yours you know uh far in the future you know, what do you think they're going to say about that particular home that maybe says, you know, obviously the, this is a David schifferfield project because of X. Do you think that there's something there that you could think that is um, close to you as who you are as an architect? I don't
0: think so. And I, I probably less and less because... Um, at the time, we're talking about early 80s or mid 80s, you know, there wasn't much modernism was in a sort of strange place. And so um, typically, especially in England, the prevailing taste was quite conservative. In fact, we had real problems with that project, with neighbors who were very objecting to, to our proposals. But I think it was, you know, in those days, doing something which was sort of strict and to some degree minimal, if we can use that word. and um, you know, yeah, modern. It sort of stood out. Whereas, however many years later, nearly thirty years later, um, I guess it would probably look pretty normal by
1: now. Before we return to David Chipperfield, a word from our sponsor, Fort Street Studio. Fort Street Studio's sumptuous carpets are expertly hand-knotted and executed in nuanced color combinations that are the signature of the studio's painterly designs, which originate from watercolor art. The brand services a global clientele from its flagship showroom in Manhattan, where their team of specialists guide interior designers, architects, and collectors through the studio's offerings. The legendary outfit has an extensive catalog, where each design can be customized endlessly. But they also carry stock carpets in standard sizes. As the offerings of Fort Street Studio are so expertly hand-knotted, photos rarely do these works of art justice. That's why an in-person consultation is so key. Only then can the subtleties of rug design and its colors truly come to life. To book your own consultation, visit fortstreetstudio.com. Built in the mid 19th century, the neoclassical Neues Museum sits on the famed Museum Island in the heart of Berlin. It originally housed Egyptian artifacts and other antiquities, as it does today and closed during World War II. Allied bombing heavily damaged the building, where it lay dormant and decaying until David Chipperfield came along. Instead of simply restoring it to its original condition like a reproduction, he leaned into it, inserting stark, modern elements and embracing the surrounding rustic, original stone and brick walls. It was controversial, especially for a state-owned institution. But David's ideas and approach won out. And it made him a champion for grand, progressive ideals in architecture and propelled his career forward, not just as a designer, but as a thought leader. I wanted to ask the architect about this pivotal undertaking to try to figure out what makes him tick and discover the roots of his process. And jumping ahead a little bit, I mean, one of the major projects, you know, in your career, of course, is the the Neue in Berlin which was, you know, I think a 10-year project to say the least. What do you think that project says about your particular approach to architecture today? Um, you know, if you're speaking to someone who, who, who doesn't know you or, or your portfolio at all.
0: Well, the Noise Museum was a, a sort of unique opportunity, a unique commission in a way, in some ways a bit ambiguous at the beginning. Uh, It was a ruined building that had stayed ruined for more than 50 years since the Second World War. It found itself, as it were, on the wrong side of the wall during the GDR period. The complexity of the damage that the building had suffered and the complexity of the original building and the ground conditions had somehow stopped it being repaired, although during the GDR period they'd started to replan finally restoration. So, rather Strangely, when the war came down, it was standing there uh, as a, a war ruin, stabilized a bit. But on the other hand, having uh, being progressively ruined by fifty years of Berlin winters, so we were dealing with a very complex piece of history and something which clearly had had deep resonance. Uh, in Germany, and especially in Berlin, of course, because it it uh, was a sort of time warp, forced one to confront the reasons that uh, it was damaged, the reasons that it hadn't been fixed, and et cetera, et cetera. So, so the approach to how one dealt with this was not just an architectural one; it was a philosophical one. About how you deal with such uh, such issues. Um, in painting and archaeology, it's fairly straightforward. You you repair and protect and stabilize the damage, but you wouldn't necessarily imitate the missing bits of a sculpture or missing parts of a painting. But you would certainly try to harmonize it. But with architecture, that which is what we wanted to do, it's not so easy to do it. Um, and although intellectually it's the correct way, technically it's difficult. And emotionally, for people of Berlin, it was quite difficult because to some degree they wanted to see the building repaired and restored and back to how it was. We resisted that and saying, you know, this building needs to be working again, but the restoration of it should include its history. Um, we shouldn't lose the qualities that physically evolved through its ruination or the, the memories that it carries through that ruination. It wasn't meant to be a, a war uh, memorial, it's not at all, and I think it's regarded as a sort of positive uh, dealing with history, um, which is what we intended it to be. So, But it was an extremely complicated project, and it forced us to um, develop a very participatory Design process, which uh, has very much formed my way of thinking and my way of working, and and, uh, and and I think that the work of the office is very
1: much shaped by that profound experience. Now, I'm with hindsight because the the museum was controversial, or at least had people that you know, as you say, like wanted it just to kind of be the way it was, or kind of almost you know restore it to some something that you know is almost completely was destroyed. Do you when you think back about that debate and think about how those debates are going on in architecture, you know, what would you like to to let people to know as a record of, you know, how these conversations happen um, in architecture? Do you with hindsight, do you kind of wish that you just did it the same way as as you had? Because you mentioned that it changed your practice also and Probably for the better, um, and so I'm I'm thinking like, is there an issue with the discourse of architecture occurs in places like London, you know, London or Berlin or New York or any kind of major Western city um, that you kind of wish you could make a change in how we approach this conversation for major projects like this because you have this experience.
0: Well, I think the I think the the problem is that the discourse hardly exists. Um, and the good thing about Germany, and especially Berlin at that point, which was, as it were, trying to find its feet again, because the reunification, but the taking down of the wall, meant that Berlin had to, once again, reinvent itself. It meant that there was a, a high level of discussion about how that should happen. And uh, discussion in Germany is always fairly rigorous and robust and reflective. And I would say to a degree which doesn't exist in London and doesn't exist where investor uh, momentum is, is uh, dominates all other considerations. And I think that's a big problem. I was a big, I mean, even though the discourse was to some degree painful and laborious and procedural, uh, and a lot of my German colleagues kept apologizing for what we had to go through in terms of even demonstrations outside the building and etc and, uh, etc cetera, et cetera. i was always a big fan of it and i i always was very encouraging to say that uh, i think i think discourse is good uh and uh, if we want people to feel strongly ab- architecture then we've got to let them say things i mean um, whereas i would say in the anglo-saxon culture we've become a, become too convenient to the idea that the city is is at the behest of investors and we haven't found a way of including, convincingly uh, including any other level of, of um, dialogue or participation. As we go forward and as we find ourselves in an uh, existential crisis of uh, of global warming and sustainability, we are going to have to change our ways of thinking and we're going to have to include uh, points of view which are not only to do with expediency and financial return. On the contrary, we're going to have to put those things in their right place. And in order to do that, we're going to have to rethink I think the whole way of controlling planning and the way that we where we build what we build how we build it's not just going to come from insulating our roofs uh, or using better window frames so we we have to tackle that seriously and uh, if the global warming crisis wasn't enough we also have I think probably something just as 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 worrying which is social inequality and uh, social inequality is also the consequence of bad planning or inconsiderate planning or leaving people behind. Where we live, how we live, what our schools are, what the streets our kids play in, all of those things profoundly affect, potentially in a positive way, the quality of life. And uh, in a way, our way of sharing our wealth. I don't believe that everything is is, uh, done through philanthropy and, (laughs) and good deed. I think we actually have to engage this. And so I think we're going to be forced into a more participatory uh, process that, that uh, planning is going to become important again. We've, we've tended to soften it. We've softened it because um, a soft planning environment is very uh, encouraging of investment. A hard planning environment is discouraging of investment. So I think cities have been nervous about imposing restrictions and demands uh, because they're worried that that puts off uh, investors. But I think now we've realized that you know our, our challenges are quite significant now. And planning is if we're going to have any idea of a circular economy or any things which are integrated in terms of uh, uh, challenging uh, or, or standing up to the, these challenges. We need planning. You can't do it without whatever type of planning one means. But in terms of governance and procurement, this is going to be important. And I think architecture is going to have to tuck in there somewhere. Architects, the architectural profession is going to have to tuck in there somewhere. And I think the days of doing signature, amazing museums that are put on color supplement covers are probably over. Um, And I think the profession has to think about being slightly more purposeful. That's not to say that architecture isn't important it's not to say that design is not important it's fundamentally important i i think we have to find ways of sharing it out a bit better we have to think about ways of improving our general physical environment not just special moments
1: and when it comes to i it brings up an excellent uh topic which was my next question uh which is that you were you were named a design advocate for london recently by the mayor and i'm curious from a what does that mean uh, on in a ground floor way? And, you know, London, of course, is London and all of the UK, but London specifically is in a a unique crossroads in that it it has its own issues. But then it's also, of course, in the center of a swirl of lots of different issues going on for the UK. And I'm curious, you know, what are your goals for this? Uh, what have you done? And And kind of, if you had a magic wand, like, what would you changes would you make or what would you want to advocate for in terms of how london will move into the future
0: um good question i'm not sure i've only just got on board of this uh, particular bus um and i'm not sure i'm going to be doing much more than sitting in a back seat somewhere um shouting at the maybe shouting at the driver occasionally but i'm uh, i'm I think you know I would add if you ask me what I'd advocate for, I would advocate that we have to build more social housing we have to find ways of limiting the increase of land value because if we just carry on with the notion of keep escalating the value of land, then we find ourselves we, the next generation finds itself without being able to afford housing and we also empty out our cities because our cities are no longer places where people live they're just places where where people invest and um, become sort of shopping centres and uh, uh, tourist centres. So I, I think we have to start looking through the telescope the other way around. We've got to think about what what creates a better city for citizens uh, and stop looking at you know how to bring tourists and how to bring investment. Um, I'm not saying we don't need investment. I don't not saying we don't need inv- tourists, but I think they 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 have to be part of the tools, not the aim itself. It's difficult to know to what degree one one can have much influence, but I think general societal shift, uh, which means that mayors are much more interested in issues that they might not have been interested 10 years ago. Controlling traffic, reducing dominance of of traffic in city centers is, is clearly now a shared issue, trying to improve the quality of public space. And... Uh, social infrastructure is, I, I would say, a shared issue. To what degree politicians and local politicians are successful on this, we're not sure. But the first issue is to at least admit that these are priorities. I, I do get a, uh, you know, being optimistic. I get a sense there's a shift in that.
1: And you recently completed your your project in Venice, and uh, I was wondering if you could tell me how that came about, and if you could, wondering if you could describe it for our listeners. It's a it's a project not so unfamiliar to us i mean
0: since noise museum and even before we have been engaged in in uh, restoration projects or projects where there is a a heavy component of uh, history and existing buildings and often existing buildings which have badly treated or have suffered through bad modifications Um, and uh, so we have worked on a lot of buildings like that in in uh especially in Germany, but uh, also some in Italy. And, uh, of course, being on St. Mark's Square, this particular project has great importance. Um, it's uh, the north side of the square, uh, buildings uh, owned by uh, Generali, an insurance company, and, in fact, where they began their life many years ago, they're now, as it were, taking back their seat uh, in the city. And have demonstrated I think admirable responsibility by investing in the building and renovating it and following our direction to to try and respect the history of the building and the, the qualities of the building which are still intact and and to elevate the or at least to, to integrate the good bits with um, Slightly better interstitial spaces, which had been treated badly, or to take away staircases which had been badly put in, or you know, all of those things that buildings suffer over a long period of time in a sort of expedient way so we've 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 brought some integrity back to the building um and uh while that's not so difficult let's say and for a museum like noise museum or something like that it's much more difficult to do it in a commercial climate with a private client um you've got to persuade them that doing things slightly better than they might need to reflects on them well and that you've got to convey to them that doing this option instead of that one um you know may penalize you financially but will will pay off in the long term and and also things which you, you can't tell that well before you do it but then luckily um they are delighted with the results and and uh, they uh, they've been very supportive through the process
1: and i'm, I'm curious like uh you know uh, anyone who <laughs> i think anyone who knows a little bit about architecture and design visits venice they kind of realize it's still stunning that it this place still exists and uh, is still standing, and it's you know um, and the way in which it's built and the way that it, which it's been sort of lovingly kind of kept up all this time. Is there anything that you learned, obviously from a project of this scale and complexity um, in Venice, like that you learned about Venice itself and the the architecture and maybe the sort of the design culture of Venice that maybe you would if you wanted to pass on a hint or a tip to anybody doing a project in Venice, what would you say?
0: Oh, well, (laughs) be prepared for time. Um, Planning in in Italy is is always complicated, and Venice is particularly complicated, to some degree um, correctly, uh, because it needs to be done carefully. Um, I would say the the thing that I always take away from Italy, because we work quite a lot in Italy, we have an office in Italy, while there are distinct characteristics, let's say that, with the Italian situation the one thing that is always so enjoyable and reassuring is the quality of craftsmanship that the skills uh, are still there the sort of common understanding of quality is there so if you're on a construction site and you're reviewing you know how something has been done it's a, it's an intelligent and open-minded discussion as opposed to a highly contractual one that you might have in london where the Contractor is got is only interested in defending his position. It's a delight to work with skilled Italian craftsmen, whether that's you know repairing brickwork or stitching leather. There is a a culture of making which we all have somewhere. I mean, every culture still has it in in bits. But northern Italy, through the whole design culture, the furniture industry, the fashion industry, has, has more than its fair fair share. And uh, that culture needs to be protected somehow because it's uh, their skills which are getting lost.
1: And uh, I, I'd love to to ask you, um, you know, before we run out of time, about this, the town of Corrobedo uh, in Spain. It's become a big part of your life and you have a foundation there. And um, I, I'm curious. What? what about that part of spain sort of captured your heart
0: um we started going there 30 years ago i was traveling a lot through the whole year and so the deal i had with my family was that i would spend at least four weeks with them every summer which grew until to become six weeks every summer and Uh, I tried to stay there through the summer, uh, and we sort of grew up there, blissful summer holidays in a very untouristic region, uh, a very natural area and a very, in, in some ways, tough area. But it was great for the kids, I think, to be in such a, not really the right word to say, real, you know, a real place. I mean, authentic is an overuse, but I think you know what I mean. It hasn't been... Spot, and I think uh, we have all loved the directness of Galicia as being rather an antidote to what we experience in London, uh, where you know London everything is overinflated and overdone and overopportunized. It's it's very nice to be in a community which is much flatter socially and economically. Divergence between rich and poor is much more extremely flat. Uh, a place where you know the landscape and and uh, nature is so powerful and uh, and so we've you know it's it's been very much part of our lives and in the last five or six years uh, uh, I set up a foundation the the president innocently asked me six years ago you know couldn't couldn't we advise them couldn't I advise the government a bit on the planning because uh, as beautiful as the nature is the, the towns and the villages are extremely ugly they've really messed them up with bad planning bad traffic plans, um, bad architecture. And so for these last six years, we've, we've developed this program. Um, I have a team of people there now. We have a, a building in Santiago, in fact, now we have a foundation. And we will and next year, we will open our headquarters there, which will have an exhibition space. We'll have a conference space. Um, we will have a public program. We will have residential courses, for which will play out with other institutions doing research on uh, protection development of a built natural environment and we are working with the regional government on sustainability policies and trying to as it were go higher up in the decision-making process to see whether we can influence planning
1: policy which ad- which seriously addresses uh, the way we protect our environment and what is a what is the perfect weekend just there just spending time there the uh to get out of london let's say what is what is the perfect weekend in Corobedo like for you
0: well a little bit of time on the water at some point sailing do you own a boat yeah we have a sailing boat just a day a a very nice day boat and uh we run a bar so i guess somewhere in the weekend would be spending time in our bar and uh swimming yeah uh, and going for a walk i mean it's just yeah it's um there's always a lot to do there
1: and tell me about the bar did they does it serve food or is it just uh just drink it serves excellent food um uh no we because we,
0: we we over the 30 years we've we've ended up always bringing a lot of people there we our summers are normally pre-covid was we normally 20 or 30 people at any one time i would cook every night and um at some point someone said you should run a bar and you know you you're, you're running a bar already, you know, you're running a restaurant already. Why don't you? So stupidly, we decided during COVID that that's what we would do. Um, the reason I enjoy cooking there is because the materials are fantastic. I mean, everything is local. Everything is straight out of the sea. What should I order? I'm curious. What should I order at the, at the bar? All of the shells, clams, mussels, all of those things, all of the, the crabs and lobsters and those things. Very good fish, especially sardines, basic things. But everything is totally fresh. Everything is a local cook. You know, we It still has, a, to use again this horrible word, a certain authenticity about it. Um, and uh, it's part of the thing that we are interested in. Uh, celebrating, I guess there are trying to remind the local community of, uh, that sometimes overlooks, uh, you know, in the desire to think that things might be more exciting in London or other places, uh, especially the young generation who wants to leave. Um, I think one of the things we're trying to do with the foundation, but also even with the bars to, to bring attention to, to what's there and for, to remind people that might take it for granted. And, and I think the, you know, it's, it's for, for me, it's a fascination because it has not high economy. I mean, the GDP per capita, I think, is something like $23,000 a year. So it's a very modest um, economy. But I would say the quality of life is very high. They just did a, did a, a census, and uh, one of the statistics it was a happiness uh, index, and uh, this year they got... The happiness index fell by two percent from 86 percent happiness to 84 percent happiness that's a pretty <laughs> impressive uh, statistic in any community and I I, I find and I, I would I would say that it's it's anecdotally uh, probably correct that and I think it's a lesson and that's why we're interested in, in we're interested in this in the foundation that uh, uh, one of the things we want to to in a way bring attention to is this community this particular community region of two and a half million people this is a very romantic uh outsider's perspective but that there is some message in there i believe that if we're really going to deal with uh sustainability we we also have to deal with consumption and if we're going to deal with consumption we have to deal with aspiration and desire and happiness and we've got to break that circle that is uh now so embedded in our culture that you must, uh, want things and you must become happy by wanting and, um, and confusing need with want. And, uh, we need to break that circle somehow in any way. So for us, Galicia is very much part of that
1: debate. And I guess as my last question, a few years ago, you were a, a guest editor, uh, at the legendary Italian design magazine Domus, where you wrote a, a cover story called, uh, what is our role? So I'm curious if you could um, summarize that for the listener. You know, if I asked you, what is your role in the world, Mr. Chipperfield?
0: Well, what I wanted to do uh, during Domus and what I had started when I was director of Venice Biennale, where I similarly invited my colleagues to uh, the title of my exhibition and my biennale was um, common ground i was interested for the people i invited to not discuss how clever they were individually and how better they were than their their colleagues but in a way what we shared together and what what we offered uh, as a profession what we shared not only amongst ourselves but as it were with society and that's been that was a theme that I took up in Domus, which was to say, you know, what is the role of the architect now? Uh, And especially given existential issues that we now have to confront. And so I took it as an opportunity to do what you just did to me, ask architects to say, well, has the current situation and the changing environment, has it had influence on the way they practice? Should it have influence on the way we practice and what way might that be? I think our answers are all similarly uh, are similarly uh, vague and uh, <laughs> imprecise we all and and they're not, not much different to the rest of you know all of us um, we all know that we need to refocus ourselves and think about how we uh, change habits and consider it, and we all think about what contribution we might make uh, personally we all have a sort of feeling that does it make much difference what i do comp- you know we all know that if we all say that then we're not going to get anywhere so uh we oscillate between optimism thinking that we can modify the way we live and pessimistically thinking that we're not going to clearly COVID gave us an opportunity to think that we it, it's possible for us to live differently as uh, directed directly to me in, in my pr- in my professional hat I think all of our offices are really trying to address this issue as much as we can within the constraints of commercial practice. And obviously, commercial practice has... Has limits because if we scrutinised everything we did, we'd probably close the door, and no one would no one would get in. So we are trying to shift direction. We're trying to think deeply about how we build. Uh, we're trying to think about who we build for, uh, and we're trying to influence uh, the habits of our clients. We are certainly taking a strong stand on trying to persuade clients not to knock buildings down in redevelopment projects um, we've just won a competition with the london school of economics by insisting that the competition rules should be rethought and and uh, we insisted that the building should be renovated and not rebuilt and we're getting traction on those things and finally i would say yes as a as another contribution the found the work we're doing in the foundation is clearly taking up now a lot of my time it's becoming part of the group that is in a way acting in a non-commercial manner uh, so therefore we're operating more freely although under under other sorts of stresses but in a way we are becoming we're we're trying to invent a practice that that uh instigates its own projects. So we create the projects ourselves. We provoke the project and we're getting a lot of support from government on this, who are who are, I would say, being very open minded about this provocation. But it's taken us six years of real frontline hard work, really on the front line, you know, with communities participating, doing field research, doing studies, doing doing tiny little things. Um and, and I've had to persuade architects in my team to give up building. And we are instead of doing competitions. We're advising institutions about how to do a competition properly. Uh, and we are doing very modest uh, interventions. But essentially, we're, we're trying to shift our role substantially.
1: A special thanks to David Chipperfield and Alessandra Coral for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.com. Net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.